0: You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com.
1: This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one.
0: All right, folks, welcome back to the show. Uh, we're keeping it up going with the producer series here. I'm going back and forth. Obviously, I did something different last week with that How to Lose $5,000 episode, which has been quite the hit. Let me tell you, that's been going around and everybody I know in the industry. People seem to be really blown away just that we gave the details of that and I thought it was funny. Our manager and people got thrown under the bus. My manager... You know, he he said that he really enjoyed the episode, but he was real bummed when he first heard it. But, hey, we're just trying to explain what's going on and what it feels like. I'm not trying to make anybody look bad. In fact, I really respect everybody's point of view all the way around and just wanted to show ours. Uh, So much so, I've got some really good news. I think you're going to love this, too. Next week, and I'm not joking about this, next week we have the promoter. Of the festival, his name is Czar, and he's going to be on the show. I've got him booked this week coming up. I'm going to talk to him and ask him his point of view, and I'd be glad to hear it. And maybe he's got some great stuff to say, and maybe I'm a big jerk. Uh, But we'll—I'll give you some more updates on what's going on there, and we'll actually hear from the promoter of the failed festival uh, next week. So stay tuned for that. And like I said, continuing with the producer series this week. I've got Ed Rose. Ed Rose is the produ- is one of my favorite producers of all time, and he's the f- person that recorded and produced the first Emery album, The Week's End. We went to Kansas in 2003, saved up our own money, and went to our favorite producer before we were signed, before anybody gave a shit who we were, and we recorded with Ed Rose who it- is, is incredible, very cool, got lots of stories and stuff I'm going to talk to him about today. So that's excellent. Um, thank you to everybody for the support you've been giving me. You guys kick ass at doing the Amazon banner link thing. So go to my website, go to BreakItDownPod.com, click the Amazon link, bookmark it, save that link, and whenever you shop on Amazon, I'm actually getting dollars. and It doesn't cost you anything other than what you normally are spending, and I'm actually getting dollars that's helping me, it's helping me pay for child care for my daughter Georgia and get this show going. Also, of course, if you'd like to actually pay for the show, even better, and a lot of people are starting to do that and that is same thing, go to my website breakitdownpod.com and click contribute and pay, you know, dollar episode, 10,000 dollars an episode, whatever makes sense to you. But at the very least, if you're going to spend an hour with me a week or at all, then it makes sense for me to that you would share the show, that you would tell somebody else if you if it's worth it to you to s- just sit here and listen to me talking to your earphones for an hour, then share the show. I'd appreciate it very much. Okay, well, let's talk to Ed Rose. Talk about Emory weeks in recording drums production whatever. Break it down, Dada. Break it down, oh, break it down. 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 That's Matt Cutter. Yeah! What's up, Matt? Hey, Ed. How's it going? It's going. Good. I'm glad to talk to you today. Yeah, it's been a while. So you've been doing any podcasts? I've heard you on them, at least one. I heard you on Pryors one time, at least. Yeah, no, I've done a couple. Um, yeah, Priors and a couple others that are just escaping me at this point. Mm-hmm. Do you enjoy it? Because I'm I'm wondering because I uh, I get this thing like where I get nervous right before I do a podcast, and it's the weirdest thing. I notice it because I'm doing this tech setup or whatever, and I'm I'm on the bus coming down here today, and I find myself already just like. I wish I didn't have to do this today. That's the way I feel about it. And <laughs> oh, no. it's, but, but it's something based in nervousness and it's something based, it's like some little, it's, it's the thing that makes me want to do it. I think I equate it to you uh, like a comic says going on stage or a performer, you know, it's like I need that rush of it. So something about that that does this podcast thing, I'm thinking I've got to talk to Ed. I've got to get the technical stuff right. I hope he enjoys it, all that stuff. And, I, you know, do you have that same thing? Is there anything about producing that, that you have that pull to? Not really. I mean, you know, with, uh,
2: you know, with uh, recording, I've just been doing it so long that mm-hmm. um, I don't know if there's anything that you can throw in front of me that would, uh, you know, shock me, surprise me, make me nervous at this. But point. what
0: about what, what's the but what I mean, was there ever the thing that makes you want to keep doing it, the love, hate thing or like the on the spot part of it? Is there is there not that I would say, you know, back in the day when I started
2: and it was all tape based. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of that because there was a lot more, uh, you know, pressure on me to get things right the first time. Yeah. Um, and as things went, uh, you know, into the computer, then, you know, then that kind of goes out the window because you don't have to worry about nailing a sound on the way in or screwing up a punch or any of that stuff. So, um, yeah, I don't know at this point. No, but you know, at, in the
0: beginning, yes. Yeah, I can see that on the the tape stuff and the more pressure and I guess the bigger budgets and studio time kind of give you that effect, but not the, there's not that immediate thing like performing and or broadcasting or, you know, something like that is, I suppose.
2: Well, exactly. And, you know, with, with podcasts, um, you know, for me, I think maybe on the first one, I got pretty wound up beforehand because I didn't know what to expect, Mm -hmm. but you know, after I did it, it's like you know, there's no way you can look into the crystal ball and know what questions you're going to be asked or anything. Yep. So, it's better just to go into it with a you know good attitude and, uh, and just do your best to
0: answer it as things come up. All right. Well, well, let's start by talking about. Um, I like to talk to producers and tech people do tech stuff and get into that. But in this one, we have a particular thing in common that we both worked on our first record the weeks end. so i want to spend a little bit more time on that than i typically would on a record of somebody I talk to but let me just start i have so many thoughts about that and i'm sure you have many many less thoughts because just but one record you recorded whereas it's my first experience recording a record but if i might if your memory fails you're totally fine but what do you recall about doing that first record with us the emory record
2: man what i recall um uh, it's fine of, you say
0: i barely remembered it was two no, weeks no, or no, whatever. I, I
2: was gonna say i think you know the the things that stick with me are uh you know a bunch of driven hard-working kids from south carolina that uh you know came in well rehearsed and uh prepared to make a record um and worked their butts off during the process i mean what did did we was that a 10-day record
0: yeah it was 10 day
2: um so yeah, I mean, I think you know, because I, I did do a little cheating last night and listened back to, uh, mm-hmm. uh to, to the record, and um, I mean, for ten days, I think that's pretty. To this day, is a pretty solid record.
0: Yeah, I think the the ten day thing was just incredible. We I didn't know any better looking back on it, but it was a. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it was such a weird time for us because it was so in- It was like the most intense thing ever. And this probably contributed to my, my memory, which I, I may have a little bit different than the way it really was. But in my memory, it was just the most intense time of my life because we had all the chips down. We, we saved our own money and we're going there to do this. And it was working with somebody that we thought was just like a, a an idol or somebody we dreamed to work with and now it's going to happen and do we really have what it takes and you know it was all our money and a year a couple of years of work and everything to do it for mm-hmm. us and we didn't have any success at all before that we weren't signed didn't have a record deal nothing we just thought we could do something and so it was so intense going in there that I, it's really hard to describe and then at the same time, coming up against you, it was, uh, it was just so, the, the only thing I can say is I found you so intimidating at that time. Like, uh, and I thought the way that you acted was so, the only way I can describe it now is it was like, it, it, was author, it wasn't authoritarian or mean, but it was very, uh, almost like fatherly or something. It's like, well, I want this guy to approve. And he, but you, you assume that role so much of just, this is what you got to do. I don't know if you could sense that we didn't know what we were doing, might've been part of it, but it was, uh, like, like, is what, this is what I, this is my quote. I always tell people, I say, well, we went to Ed Rose and we did that first record and he was amazing, but he wasn't even nice. That's yeah. what I say. <laughs> like well, you weren't it, even nice the whole time, the <laughs> way I remember it. Well, you know, and I
2: apologize for that, but, um, uh, you know, in a record like that, with a, a band that was that young, that mm-hmm. new to the uh, record making process, and ten days, I mean, there's not a lot of time where you can, you know, be buddy buddy, right you know, dick yeah. around stuff like that. I mean, it's you. It's got to be down
0: to business, you know. Um, that is that is right. Well, you, down to business is the way I just have just always described. It. Like I said, that probably plays into me a little bit more given the thing, but if you, it's, here's what I remember from it is we went in there the first day. We're standing around. We'd probably been up for three hours before you came in. I mean, we just were (laughs) so wired. We had the drums. We were all standing around in a circle. You came in the control room, and then we were just standing in there, and you did some stuff in there, and hadn't said hey yet or anything. We were just dying. Then you finally come in the room after about five minutes of us seeing you through the glass, and you came in and said, okay, well, you know, you can put the drums here, and we'll get started, and what something like that and he goes oh yeah and i saw that some and just all you said the only thing he said he said and i saw that some of you have cameras and he said it's okay if you take pictures but don't take any pictures of me and i'm yeah. serious about that and you turn around yeah. and walked away <laughs> that's, that's, that's the only thing he said to us the first thing. it was just like terrifying for us well no and you know in the picture thing i mean i just
2: that's something that i just it's a, it's a hang-up i had
0: what was the hang-up there i never asked
2: you about it since well, I just don't like having my picture taken. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's as simple as that. Um, and it wasn't anything to do with anything other than than my hang-up.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I found that really, uh, it was just it just added to the intensity kind of thing of it. And we didn't I mean, we didn't know how to tune the drums, what we were doing at all and stuff like that. And then I remember, too, the thing about it that—that that is, uh, it was right sandwiched somewhere in between you working on Motion City's record and Rocket Summer record. Mm-hmm. And so, when just in making casual conversation, the first few things you were saying was, um, you were talking about Motion City, and you know had reasonable things to say about them, but you were trashing Bryce so hard about the Rockets on record. Do you remember that?
2: Oh yeah, no, that was um, that was one of those records that um, I came home from every day during the recording of that. Mm-hmm. And was like, and would tell my wife, man, I don't know if I can do another day of it. <laughs> um, you know, from the first phone call I had with Bryce, uh, you know, things were weird. And, um, you know, the reason why I think I kept going with it is because it was, uh, you know, one of those records where I knew that I was going to only have to put in eight hour days. And it went on for weeks. So it was mm-hmm. a chance to have somewhat normal hours and make you know decent money on it but i mean from a compatibility standpoint um you know that was just not a good fit sometimes yeah. you get into that in the studio and um sometimes you can figure out ways to make it through it and sometimes you know you just have to bail on it but that was one of those things where uh no i mean if you ask bryce about it he'd be like yeah no, we we're like oil and water in the studio
0: yeah. it was uh, so funny because we just you know like i said we're trying to warm up and get comfortable here and you're like and you, all you were doing was talking about how crappy the last person you worked with was like oh gosh he's gonna say that about us and it was like he couldn't play he wanted to do it what was what was the beef but what was the the thing that made that so difficult for you i can't remember exactly what you were saying about it well but. going into it he made it
2: uh, uh very clear to me that i was not his first choice you know and uh, <laughs> And, you know, when you're working with someone and they're constantly saying, well, you know, you weren't my first choice. You know, I'm only here because, you know, my first choice, you know, <laughs> uh, was going to be too expensive. Um, and also, I think, you know, from uh, the record he he wanted to make um, and where my head was making records, um, those two just didn't line up very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of it was... Uh, getting mired for me it was getting mired down in a lot of like the the busy work of pro tools a Mm -hmm. lot of the editing stuff which uh you know has honestly you know driven me crazy um so yeah there was a lot of that a lot of just you know us not really even liking each other's people very much um so yeah from from top to bottom you know that thing was you know that thing was going to be a struggle from the get-go i wonder
0: what would make somebody like him doing his first record that have that much um, I, I don't want to use the word arrogance, but confidence, or whatever it is, or unawareness to 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 have that much going into a first record, because that was really, I like guess, first record. Well, yeah, no, I
2: think um, he had had uh, some manner of success before mm-hmm. uh, um, we started in on that, and um, I think you know he felt pretty good about. Uh, not only I think kind of where he was musically, but uh, all of the things that he had kind of been setting up because he didn't have a label at the time we recorded it, but he had been courting a bunch of labels, so mm-hmm. he knew he was going to have a home for it.
0: Um, so I think you know he you know given his previous success, he was probably you know feeling pretty good. That's pretty funny. I remember yeah, I just remember thinking, well that's that's something else. And but yeah, you were all business, so it was like you were, and even at that time, you were doing really pretty much. Sp- Nine to five hours. You'd come in at work every day. It was so formative for me, looking back on it, seeing it, because you would put your head between the speakers and focus for eight hours, and then somewhere in the middle of the day, you'd say, "Okay," you turn around, and say, "I'm going to take, I'm going to eat lunch now," you, and then you would sit back and eat eat, eat a bowl of noodle soup and an <laughs> apple, and at the console for 15 minutes, and then start back working again. Yeah, that was man. it. You did that I did that all day for ten days straight. I guess is what you got to do.
2: Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's it. You know, that's, um, that's just kind of the way I work. I like to, when I'm at work, I like to work and not work when I'm at home.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, the, we did the, we did pre-pro coming in too, which is cool. So we had sent you all our demos and you deserve a lot of credit for making those songs turn into, uh, they were, a lot of those songs were six and seven minutes and stuff like that. And and so we had all this music and all these parts, and our music's kind of all over the place anyway, as far as f- not traditional form songs. But um, we got in there, I was excited to do pre-pro, and he said, okay, well let me show you what I've done. And I was thinking, I wonder what parts he wrote and what stuff did he do? And then you just played all our songs back with several minutes chopped out of each one. <laughs> <laughs> And so that was pre bro I was like, well, okay. But it was unbelievably, completely the right thing. And when I hear those songs today, I'm like, I am so glad that instrumental part didn't repeat four more times. I oh, mean, cool. everything you did made it. I mean, I hear other bands making the mistake all the time. And every time I'm ever working with somebody, that's the, the, that's the way I look at it. That's the way I say, you got to chop this. You got to chop that. And it's like, you don't need to have that. Thing happened two more times before the vocal comes in. It just does not need it, mm-hmm. and that and whole section of our song were just gone. And that was that was stunning to me because I thought, well, pre production is all this creative stuff, but it really was getting rid of all the bullshit that we had in our songs that did not need to be there. So that was a that was a big deal. I remember thinking at the time, did you do that. Is that the, your typical approach, or just how we struck you?
2: Well, no. I think you know with with anything, um, you know, I try to reduce everything down to the the simplest it can be, and. Especially when it comes to arrangement, I think bands, especially like yours, where you got a bunch of players in the band, um, can tend to like dwell on a part that is either really fun to play, mm-hmm. um, that you know, for the average listener is like, okay, I get the idea, you know, after yeah. a couple repetitions, and we don't need eight of them. Um, so that's basically with arrangement. All I try to do is to you know approach it from the casual listener standpoint, and you know if this part's awesome and it's really inspiring, yeah, let it go. But if it's just kind of the same thing over and over again, you know, try to pare it down to where it's, you know, just the the
0: necessary part of the arrangement, really. Yeah. And then you were such a hawk on the click. I'd never really paid much attention or thought about clicks or timing. I, it was weird to be that far along and I hadn't really thought about timing other than, well, you just try to play together. And I remember sit, you hearing, listen to the click right there in the speakers and listen to a guitar part or a bass part and saying, well, that's early and that's late and stuff like that. And I, I could, I didn't. It's so bizarre to look back on that, but I didn't hear that. I, I was lo- looking at looking at it and just saying, well, what is he here? How can you tell if it's early or late? Because it was stuff that was, you know, really pretty close. I mean, it wasn't right, like of way course. off, but you could hear er, this and that, and you kept just making revisions. Say, well, try that again. Go this way. Try that's a little behind. And I just was just. I looked, you know, because I I had done recording and stuff before just on eight tracks and four tracks and stuff like that. And I never had seen it done professionally or really been around professional musicians at that point in my career. And so I was just like, well, I guess I can't do that. I mean, you know, some people have other skills and I'll I'll never be able to do that (laughs) kind of thing. And it it wasn't even a year or two later. And now that's it's just so bizarre to look back on how much I can hear timing and tuning and things like that that I didn't realize at the time. But that was my first exposure to seeing somebody use their ear, you know, in, in that way. And uh, you were just, you were saying you had to get everything right, right there at the thing. And you were, you would, uh, one thing that I thought was interesting about it, it was was not hardly any overdubs, no doubles, no layering. You're like, we don't want to make guitar soup. You say, <laughs> one guitar on one side, one guitar on the other side, and we're going to get it right, and then we're going to move on. And, yeah. yeah, so, and so... And it was just super disciplined approach. And then the thing from my point of view that's so interesting about that is we did our next record with Aaron Sprinkle. Mm
3: -hmm. And
0: uh, Aaron's very much opposite you in approach. You you you, You both have the same type of abilities and ear and things like that in a lot of ways it's not like a different type of even product really but it's the way you work is completely different which blew my mind as well and so we've done a few records with Aaron and then I worked with Aaron at his studio for several years and engineered his records for a long time mm-hmm. um so I've done a ton of stuff with him but it was so it's so bizarre the look at the way he did stuff so he would just go okay get a double get a this do it three or four times and then he would just always keep leaving the room almost never in the room almost never put his head in the speakers and uh-huh. I remember thinking after doing a record with you and then doing a record with Sprinkle like we were 3 weeks into recording our second record and I was like is he ever going to work? Is Sprinkle <laughs> ever going to do anything? That was that was what I kept thinking the whole time and it was just, it was just it's just so opposite he just acted like he didn't care and it was all going to be just fine and he I guess he would do I mean I understand his ways a lot better now, but it was really for him, it's, uh, he spent so much more focus on the personal and the artist, and then he would stay up all night and just seriously stay up all night tuning and editing by himself. He just wanted to be alone. He didn't want anybody ever around when he would do that, that kind of work kind of thing. And you right. would make sure that it was already done before you get done with this guitar part on that track. So is that, you just, you're not a guy who likes to sit and edit all night, for instance.
2: No, I hate editing. I you know that's fucking what drove me out of yep. making records. Mm-hmm. I mean you know when uh, when I started doing all, records on Pro Tools, there was maybe a year where I was like, "Oh, this is pretty cool. I can fix a lot of stuff. This is great And then when it turned into uh, quantizing everything, tuning mm-hmm. everything, that's when I was like, you know I don't enjoy this anymore at all. I mean uh, you know th- the thing I loved about recording was you know, interacting with musicians and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the creative part of it. Um, editing is not creative. Editing is drudgery. I mean, it's as awful as running an Excel spreadsheet. Yeah. Um, And that, and I just never could get past that.
0: But, but you were compelled to do it though. Like you didn't, you know, you would do, you did what you would, you, you were big on, I mean, you were very sharp on editing and replacing and getting things right and being able to do that. Right. You know, and do it amazingly, it, within five ten minutes of this the you know guitar player walking out of the booth you would already have it cleaned up but you i remember it's very meticulous and very good editing you would just do it super fast and, and get through it yeah i mean you know because to me the editing
2: part was just the drudgery that came after takes you know it wasn't any you know it was one of those things where at the end of the day when a kid listened to your record i wanted him to go man those guys can play you know mm-hmm. that feels awesome um, and that just, you know, like in a record like yours, there was some editing, but not not like it turned into, a, you know, a couple of years down the road.
0: Yeah, it did. that was kind of the beginning of the time. What Pro Tools were you on then? Seven? 6.3 probably or something like that. I have no idea. <laughs> it was like it was really early still. And it wasn't like everybody was doing all the editing and replacing that, that came in really the next three or four years after that. It changed, mm-hmm. it changed a whole lot and became, I guess, a really expected thing. So was that a continual bum out as the trend moved more and more toward those kind of perfection things.
2: Absolutely. It got to the point where, um, you know, with, I would say a combination of musicianship and then, uh, trends in production where, um, it kind of turned into every session. It was, you know, record maybe five takes of the drums, uh, chop together the best bits, then quantize those best bits. Mm-hmm. Then, sound replace, the kick, snare, toms, and, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I was spending all of this time doing all this editing, and it would have taken me, you know, if I would have just programmed the drums, which is ultimately how they sound, mm-hmm. uh, I could have had all the drum tracks done by lunch of the first day.
3: Yeah, <laughs> And
2: and um, that's when, you know, I really started just, you know, it's like, oh great, i got to record this band with a shit drummer, and... You know, I can look into the crystal ball and know that, you know, we're going to go through X amount of days of me dragging him through tracks, you know, trying to get stuff that's close enough that I can quantize and then I'm going to have to replace all these sounds and it's just, just got, I mean, that's disgusting to
0: me. Yeah, absolutely. And, Especially the worse the music is, the worse the players are, and the worse you like that style of band that gets to be. Absolutely. Ultimately just, you know, I, I had a really good momentum and resume going at one point and i i it was a similar thing just for about three years ago for me where i had i had a whole bunch going and it was like okay well i can just take new baby bands from labels that sound like this and i know what to do and i know what they want to do or i you know like it a lot of people would have said well that you were you were so you had what everybody wants to do for a career you could go do that and i You know, I felt lucky that I didn't have to record, for instance, local bands or even anything like that. I could actually record real bands with some budget on labels. And it just, it feels like, I mean, babysitting or just process running kind of a thing. And it just didn't seem appealing. So I always said, yeah, I'll do it. But I just never took any gigs. I would say, well, I should be writing music. I should be making podcasts. I should be learning new stuff. And Mm -hmm. ultimately, didn't find it, it didn't have. Even something like producing music didn't ultimately have um, enough creativity. When you put it that way, it just wasn't a, like I thought I'd do creative things like record music. Everybody would say, right. and it wasn't at least in two thousand eight, nine, ten. I don't. I think it maybe is swinging a little bit of a different direction now, which is kind of refreshing. With some, you know, people are doing some things differently. I think they've taken that as far as they can take it. You know, with the the machine sound and everything, kind of I believe mm-hmm. I think so. But yeah, it's just, it's just not that appealing to, to do it that way. But we did, we were doing, that was, we did have, uh, to me it was real Frankenstein-y to see that you were able to actually make or replace stuff. I wasn't familiar with that at the time. And we did have a kind of a weak link. Our drummer, Seth, wasn't really very good. And uh, like I remember on one song we had, he just, you know, you made it very apparent that he couldn't play it. Like mm-hmm. we had the song, we wrote it, and the drummer could not play the part. And it's like, what are we going to do? And so you made him sit down and play each hit, you just kind of roll your eyes. Okay, play the kick drum. Play the kick drum again. You know, we tried it for probably 45 minutes or 15 minutes probably. And you're like, okay, well, just hit the kick drum. All right, hit the snare drum a few times. Okay, now play this. And, you know, just you gave him like three or four instructions and then you just built the drum loop and we made it into kind of a loop and used it for the whole song. So I'm going to play that one. But uh, this drum part, when we didn't ever play the song live because he couldn't, once we realized he really couldn't actually play it well, we just never even did the song. Um, while he was in the band, we never, we just never played the song. But this part on this record, which is the main drum part, never, our drummer, Seth, to this day, still never played it. No <laughs> it's just built by you, but here it is. Ah. It's that loop there um, that, you know, the three kick drums in a row, he wasn't able to hit them with near close enough together with near enough velocity to make it, you know, actually worked so and so he's never played that part before and it was on our record which blew my mind that there was a part on our record that nobody played
2: <laughs> yeah well i mean but you know i would say that you know uh from the dawn of the pro tools era there were probably plenty of records that or pro, plenty of songs on records that i made that had similar things where i mean especially on the you know the that song there you know that i mean getting those three bass drums to feel good, mm-hmm. and not only from a timing standpoint, but from a velocity standpoint. Um, yeah, I mean, that's you know that takes a pretty good right
0: foot. And I, and I remember feeling like, well, that does sound a little bit, uh, almost unnatural sound. It sounded a little bit robotic kind of at the time, but then I remember just a year or two later hearing songs and going, oh, now I know what this is, and this doesn't sound anything like real drumming in a way. Mm-hmm. But it became normal, and when the, the moment that happened for me, I was in Hot Topic, listening to the new record from seriously probably my f- second favorite band in the world. Reggie is mm-hmm. my, is really my second favorite band, I would say probably. And uh, I heard the let's see if I've got the, I've got a clip from that, and this is like taken right there from the week's end from two thousand and three to maybe two years later, where that where you were recording, and it's even more mechanical like that. But let's listen to it for a second. Let's get it. Oh yeah, you know it's faster. Those kicks are so close together, and it sounds like a normal song to me now. But I was like, "Oh, that's not that's not playing." There's there's not that doesn't that's it's it doesn't sound like exactly like a machine. But those kick drums are clearly not pl- play. It's not that there's no drummer's good enough. It's just that's a different thing at that point. And well, it, it became acceptable, and the ear goes, "Oh, you, you start to learn how to listen to music that way." Well, and I think on um, there was. Uh... Uh, Reggie. uh, I think it
2: was like Lord of the Bling or something. Is that what that was from? That's from the Under the Tray album. Okay. There was a period there where you know when James and I were working together, um, where you know we had been recording drum tracks with him. You know, just going in and doing it, and Mm -hmm. uh, then we did one thing where we basically pieced it together, just like we were talking about with your track, and he was like holy shit, this is so much easier. Yeah. And then we can totally change the drum part later, you know, and we can do this and that. And there was a period there uh, um, where we did that on a number of his tracks. Mm-hmm. And for, you know, for Reggie the Full Effect, I, you know, I thought a lot of that seemed fine. But I think in some of them, the, the later stuff, we went back to having Brian Pope play on it just because, mm-hmm. That, that dude's a drum machine, but with feel, you
0: know? Yeah, well, I'm not opposed to it. I'm saying Reggie and that record and the uh, promotional copy are just my favorite. And they're so, to me, they're so, it's really hard to describe. I try to tell people this, but it's so good, but it's got such a sense of humor to it. Totally. It's just funny. I mean, but I, I'm. it sounds like a thing. Like, to me, it's the biggest compliment in a world that music can be good and funny. That yeah. That's unbelievable to me. I, I love the B-52s. Mm-hmm. I like Reggie and the full effect. And I just think if you can be that fun or even have a sense of humor to it and still be moving, that's incredible because the two don't always go together. And I think that all that stuff that James does and the attitude and stuff totally, it's not like forg- you can forgive the program he drums in. It's like totally part of it. I wouldn't have it any other way. And it, it's almost like the tongue-in-cheek about what music is. I don't even know how to how to describe it, but it totally connects with me. And uh, the, even the guitars are super. I imagine they're pretty direct guitars, or what? Is, how does some of those guitars seem to me to be uh, very? I think pretty much uh,
2: uh, all of that stuff was uh, probably through uh, my Marshall. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of that stuff was at that at that period. Or like on the one the one record we had Corey White play all the guitars, uh, he may have brought his uh, Mesa in. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but early on, you know, like
2: the first. You don't ever
0: do direct or simulate guitars.
2: No, that's not the that's not the era you know yeah. that I grew up in. I mean, uh, you know, for for some reason, you know, sure there are we have tons of uh, decent sounding uh, amp simulators in the computer
0: now, but um, I'm still a hardware guy. Mm-hmm. Well, here's some more drums from our record that are. Um, this really sounds like that room. In the, to me, does that does that sound like that oh, room? Absolutely, to Absolutely,
2: especially in the bass drum.
0: Yeah, it's a pillow. It's got the attack, and then this second, this far, almost separate element of roominess to the kick. And it's very, it's very much in that time period, and very much in that room of yours. There's so many records that you've done that have that same sound. I was so happy to hear. To me, those are Ed Rose uh, Ed Rose drums, and it's because I, I partly the room and just the way you do them. Um, and I just thought that was so cool to have a section on our record that was—that's the sound that—that's exactly yes. the sound. So it was, yes. you know, in a lot of ways it came from. One of the first things you said was, "Well, it doesn't come from the, you know, the drum sound comes from right here." You held up your hand, and said, "This is where the drum. This is where your tone is." You said the same for guitar. I never forget that. It's, I mean, it, that's what it sounds like. But in this particular case, you can actually hear the room and and those kind of things. Do you you hear? You hear the room like that. You think it would have been different if we did a different studio? Think um, it would have mattered.
2: Well, I you know from as much as the room Mike's guy used in the final mixes of of your record, mm-hmm. yeah, you probably recorded him about anywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, Just because, you know, that in particular is a good example of them kind of coming through. But I think through the course of most of the record, you don't get a lot of that. Yeah,
0: and the rest of the tracks, if it's not, the only two places i played on so far just two isolated, almost, drum tracks. But you can really hear it, and I thought that was Uh neat to look back on it, to look back on drums from, whatever, 2003 now, because they sound so different now, and it was, I don't know, a special time, really. And then um, I thought another funny thing you did is... We were doing a song called As Your Voice Fades, and we wanted to do a lo fi or something thing we told each other at the beginning of it. So we did that, and we said, Okay, we're sitting back on the control room couch. and said, Why don't we make it lo fi, like it's an old radio or a telephone? <laughs> and then you could put like a, maybe a record scratching sound underneath it, and it would sound, you know, like it was coming through an old radio or whatever. And you're, or, or maybe we described it like, Let's do something different here. I don't think we laid it out that way. And then you made something that was, a little more outside, like I don't remember what you did to process, I really wish I did, but you made some really interestingly outside process thing that I hadn't really heard to to, to, to be different, and we're like, no, more like a record scratch and an old telephone or radio sound, and you just, you put your head down, two or three seconds, and then you lifted your head up, and you clicked on the computer for about two minutes, and then you said, is this what you want, hit space bar and turn around. This is what you were looking for? And it was just the real cheesy kind of lo-fi normal thing. And to to us, it was like, that's such a cool idea. But uh, obviously ultra cliche to you. And you were super frustrated that we wanted to do the obvious cliche thing for an intro to a song. (laughs) So you must have gotten that a lot. I I wish I could remember what you had done originally that was different than that. But then we went back and we kind of landed up in the middle. But this is the part that you were annoyed that we did such a standard (laughs) (laughs) lo-fi. We agreed to ditch the record-scratching part. Good choice. (laughs) But uh, people do like it, though. I mean, people love the song, and they love that intro. And, you know, I don't know. But you had a... uh, What are some of the other cliches like that that just kill you when bands ask for?
2: Man. uh, Breakdown before the last chorus. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. But the the whole AM radio uh, record-scratching thing was... uh, it was one of those things that after it became like after it actually became a cliche and I had to spend so much time talking bands out of it. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, let's do something new. Let's do something that isn't like, oh, there's the AMRTO yeah. sound.
0: <laughs> and then the rest of that song, as you put it, is all hollering. You just mm-hmm. called our screaming hollering in a yeah. very dismissive way. Um, which we thought was funny, not mean or anything like that. But you've done a bunch of records with screaming and hollering on them. You just it's just it never seemed to be something you liked. Did you ever ch- come around on that? Well, or you, you still know, don't like hollering.
2: Well, you know when it comes to, when it comes to you know screaming and yelling like that. Um, I think if the you know if the music is there to substantiate it, mm-hmm. you know then fine. I mean if it fits the the dynamic of the of the the song and the band, fine. Um, but I felt like you know. At that point in music, there was a lot of the trying to see here we're singing and now we're yelling, yeah. you know. And so there was a lot of that where uh, to me that as long as it works in the the dynamic of the song, sure, but that felt really trendy to me at that time because at that point it was like, okay, this is this is becoming a, a thing of its own.
0: Well, if if some hillbillies from South Carolina can find their way into it, Mm-hmm. then obviously it's already permeated through some some layers to get down to us being able to do it. So it was certainly what couldn't have been on the cutting edge even at that time. And it's oddly, though, looking back on it, people like to say that we are uh, early kind of scream screamy singy band like even right. you know even today but mm-hmm. you rightly identified that even at that time it was behind you know well behind the curve it was already a cliche to you in 2003 but and you know and that's the funny
2: thing is because you know there was you know as you know kind of every evolution of of uh music has kind of gone on you know I see that you know once it kind of gets to a certain level then it's like for me I'm like okay that's you know if if this many people are already doing it then You know, it's already, you know, next year it's, it's in Walmart, Yep. you know, and that's one of the things that, you know, if I can look into the crystal ball and see that stuff, then I, you know, I want to try to, you know, push, push beyond Mm -hmm. that and go and let's, let's think about what's next instead of what's happening now, because by the time your record comes out, it's going to be even more dated and more dated Mm and more dated. So that was one of the things that, you know, I was always trying to get bands to think about, Hey, this is a really cool musical trend now. But by the time your record comes out, you're swimming with a million other fish doing the exact same trick. Yep. So try to think about what's, you know, what could be a little outside of that? What could be a little We different.
0: did a good job with all our screaming parts. Let's see if I can play one here. Um, this one I particularly like, mainly because this is me screaming at the beginning. Why did you... you still took the time to, to treat it well. This was your idea. It's me screaming the first lines in mono and then the end of each line you had toby do and double and pan that so i don't know if people notice that so toby's with that and then me and then toby does the alive kind of thing all the way so i think when you listen to that track you probably don't people don't really even notice that unless you're a a big fan or really pay attention to that kind of stuff but i thought that totally made that song that wound up being one of our most popular songs from that record or forever so that was your idea
2: well and i was just you know i think you know, when to get back to the the Holleran thing, right there in that context, perfect. I mean, I think that's, you know, th- what's going on with the drums and the guitars and everything uh, supports it beautifully, you mm-hmm. know? And I think it fits right in the pocket there. So, um, yeah, I, feel, I was going to say, I mean, in the mix, the mix sounds great, too. Um, mm-hmm. So,
0: uh, hats off to, did J.R. McNeely do that? Yeah, Jr. mixed it, yeah. Yeah, he did a Oh, great you job know what? On. You know what? I had just thought of something else that I forgot about on this is we, at the time, didn't know we were going to get signed or get somebody else to mix it. So Mm -hmm. we recorded the week's end in nine days. Now, this is the craziest part is we recorded it in nine days, and on the 10th day, you mix the whole record. (laughs) (laughs) We mixed 10 songs on the 10th day. So we only had nine days to track, and you literally mix. You used to work till 7 or 8 that night and mix the whole record in one day. yeah. And so we didn't use those mixes. Unfortunately, I don't have them. But obviously, that was just, you know, I'm, I, actually, there were some things on your mixes that I still, to this day, lament that were really cool. But it wasn't the same uh, amount of time and everything that needed to be put into it ultimately when re- we released it. But I remember your mixes, in fact, were pretty awesome. But well, we, did, we didn't end up using them. But you literally mixed the whole weeks in in one day, and we tracked it in nine, which was unbelievable. Well, yeah, about and, that
2: I, and again, that was one of those... Uh, uh, records that when I heard it after it had been mixed, I was like, man, they did a good job going with uh, <laughs> you know going with going with someone else because you know he put a spin on it that you know mm-hmm. I, it would
0: never cons- i would have never considered yeah so. he did, he did a good job he'd mixed a, f- a few of our things and stuff like that but you know i uh, I really like the what uh somebody like you their approach is so is so bizarre to think about how not tone and gear driven it was. And especially because in that time, it's not like we're going to sit there and A, B mic. That's what people think we're going to talk about today. So, what, what do you think about it, you know, U87 versus, you know, what stuff like that. And it's so, I know you have microphones you like and stuff like that, but it's so bizarre how that part never entered into it. I remember when we came in the first day, well, yeah, we did that week's end in, nine days, but the first day was pre-pro in practice, and the last day was mixing, so eight days of tracking, but we came in the first day, set up all together, and we put this bass cab we had, just some bass cab, it wasn't even a 115 speaker in a room, and you set us all up with headphones, and you tossed a 57 on a little stand in the vicinity of the bass amp to set up for headphones to whatever, mm-hmm. and so then we all got our headphones going and ran through the songs, and then the two days later, we started to, to track the bass, And I was so excited. I got up early, came down, said, I can't wait to see what mics he uses, what DIs, what's the signal chain going to be, stuff like that. And you said, okay, tune up. You had Joel tune up. And then you said, okay, we're going to start on this. I was like, well, what about the bass sound? Uh, What what are we going to do with the bass sound? And you're like, that sounds good to me. It was, just what, it was just that 57 that you put near the bass cab. Uh-huh. And that was, that's what we recorded the bass with. And you didn't even readdress it or look at it or play with the placement with the flashlight or anything like that. I mean, I'm sure you had more thought when you put it where you put it in the first place. But it, from my point of view, you just threw 57 in the vicinity. And when it was time to track bass, let's talk about the tuning. Let's talk about the timing.
2: Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, for me, I've never been a, a, gear, I've never been a gear snob. You know, mm-hmm. when it comes to uh, like the recording stuff, uh, I've always been more concerned with, you know, performances and, uh, um, you know, I think, uh, a lot of guys will get bogged down in gear
3: mm-hmm. and
2: forget that no one ever bought a fucking record because it was tracked with a U87, Right. you know, um, that has nothing to do with it. It's the, the performance that ultimately gets people to buy records, uh, not what Mike preamp you used.
0: Yeah, you even have a thing on your website that talks about preparation. I don't think I have time to read it, mm-hmm. but I, I want to. I almost want to read it out loud. But I'm going to ask everybody to go to edrose.com and look at the preparation link. Uh, it's all about recording and you being ready. Don't even think about anything until you do all the stuff that Ed says here. It's really good. It talks about you know how to have your demos ready, how to take care of your instruments, how to practice, what practice means, and li- you know listening and planning. And nowhere on there does it say make sure you have this kind of humbucker or or use these (laughs) microphones or it's nothing like that so yeah which is i don't know i think there's probably you think there are a lot of producers that are a lot more gearhead than you though oh completely yeah no i know that there are guys that uh are
2: really i mean downright weird about hey man i've got to be tracking on 1073s or we're not Mm -hmm. doing drums you know and things like that and it's like okay you know if if that if that's what you know Allows you to make great records, then you know, then that's your process. That's totally fine. But I always, you know, felt that you know, if you had a thousand bucks to spend uh, on drum tracks, uh, it's better to spend them on good drums and good heads than uh, mm-hmm.
0: yeah, Mike drum please. heads, yeah, and the tuning. Yeah, starting yeah. from there. This is some stuff from the Apple C Cast that you recorded. That's you know very different than than us. But if if you think about it, you can hear a, a way that this sounds like. Emory's The week scene which is so interesting it's partly Carrie, partly the room partly you but I love the way this this, this record is no, obviously Cass was one of our favorite bands that's on the low level owl part one yeah. of theirs yeah, what do you remember about that level,
2: like, those low level owl records were some of the uh, uh, I think some of the best things I've
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I was really you know lucky to meet up with those guys when, when I did. And uh, they're a
0: Lawrence band.
2: Well, they, yeah. When I met them, they had just moved to Lawrence from, I believe San Diego. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, the first thing we did was, uh, Vitalis, which was a five day record.
0: Um, Wow. That's unbelievable.
2: Yeah. Which, you know, it turned out cool. Everybody was stoked on it, but it was so rushed that it was basically like, all right, did you get through your part without fucking up? All right, cool. Let's move on. Um, Mm -hmm. Whereas with the low-level records, we had um, a little time where we could you know, try some different stuff. And by a little time, we did uh, both of those records in 19 days total, mm-hmm. all in that's, for both of them. That's
0: awesome. And yeah. uh, so you know, I know we don't have a ton of time left, but there's a couple more things I wanted to talk about. One is uh, that you, despite the, the light I paint you in as far as being tough – which mm-hmm. I appreciate and learn so much from. One thing is everybody on the other side of the glass when they were tracking is was like, is this the same guy? Because when you were tracking, you were unbelievably encouraging and supportive, mm-hmm. which is, you know, it's, it's through the talk back, you have a whole different demeanor. You're aware of that? Oh, of course. And so yeah. how is it that, and I mean, I understand the importance of that, and everybody clearly does, how it is to make the singer feel good and try it again, or you've almost got it. Uh, and I wonder why you feel like it's important to do that, almost, and expend that energy there, but not the rest of the time when, when you're working.
2: Well, I don't know. I think you know, in uh, when tracking, um, it's important that uh, the person on the other side of the glass feels comfortable and knows mm-hmm. that they're being supported, and knows that you know I'm looking out for their best interest and I'm just only trying to get the best Mm -hmm. performance out of them that I can. I'm not trying to do anything other than, you know, find out what your limit is and make sure you're performing at that limit all the time.
0: Mm -hmm. So it has this, you know, counter effect of like, oh, this is Ed. He's the one that's tough. He's the one that's rolling his eyes here Then I can watch him with other people. But when I'm in there, I'm feeling like, Hey, he thinks I'm doing good. I've almost got right. it. And Ed's a tough guy. So he would let me know. So that's the part of it that really balances out your whole demeanor that I'm sure is relatively unique um, for producers. That's one thing I'm sure I've seen and been around a ton. And that one is unique to you is that uh, ability to flip those two. And actually, I'm going to say that your toughness not in the talk back and your honesty and, and things really play into how much more encouraging it is when you are on the other side of the talk back. So it also must be some amount of extra mental effort for you to, to do that. Does it? you feel like that's a exp, um, cognitive expense at that time to do that?
2: Well, I don't know. I mean, the whole thing is, you know, uh, when I'm sitting in front of the monitors, you know, you have my undivided attention 100%. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no, like, me, you know, dicking around with my phone while tracks are going down or anything. It's, you know, that's just... Maintaining that level of concentration throughout the course of a, a 10 hour day is is tough. and uh, I think uh, you know whatever you know however that you know translates to when you know it takes going down, how I'm acting versus when there's not a take going down, how I'm acting, I think mm-hmm. that's just you know those are those uh, you know just the differences
0: in how I'm focusing at the time. Well hyper focus, you definitely have that. Yeah you definitely have that um which probably leads to more annoyance and stuff like that so how you know you talked a little bit about things you got frustrated with and there's a bunch of business and you had the studio and you sold the studio we don't have time to get into all that stuff but you ultimately decided to do this less or you're not recording at all right now a prior said you have some gig at doing something really cool in lawrence though
2: yeah no let me tell you about that uh the uh, lawrence public library uh in uh when it was remodeled in 2014 uh Put a recording studio in there, Mm -hmm. which anybody that uh, has a valid Lawrence public library card uh, can use for two sessions a month. And, um, you know, when I uh, uh, first heard about it, I was like, oh, my God, that's, you know, that's brilliant. I mean, trying to, you know, as a guy who tried to run a for profit studio for basically his entire adult life and kind of saw what was happening with music and certainly, you know, directly affecting me what was happening with budgets. Um, you know there's just not the money in music that there once was um, so when I heard about this I'm like oh man that's that's just brilliant and then uh, the library director who was in this really great band called Vitrious Humor back in the day um, had run across an old dad of his and he was like hey Ed do you still have a dat machine I was like sure so I let him borrow my dat machine and uh, when I went to pick it up I picked it up at the library and he was showing me around the studio and I was like oh my god this is so cool and um, you know, are you guys doing this, are you doing that, you know, you know, what all you got going on? I was really curious about it. And so we end up having like this half hour conversation about what they're doing. And at the end of it, it was like, well, you know, go home and think about, you know, if you're able to turn this into a job, what would that look like? And, uh, you know, 20 minutes after I got home, I had a job description written up and on his desk. And, um, yeah, I've just been loving it down there. Um, but, yeah, no, I think uh, you're going to see a lot more of this, too, in libraries coming up because uh, based on the, the number of people that have contacted me from other libraries about doing something Such simple. Such a cool idea. Well, it really is. And, um, you know, the community is behind it 100 um, percent week. I mean, if you wanted to book a weekend down there, you'd have to book it two months out now. Um, it's getting so incredibly busy. Uh
0: And before that, when you were doing, you started doing the restaurant, did the bourgeois pig, you still do that? Nope. I got out of that, uh, in 2014. No, it got to a point
2: where, you know, trying to, you know, continue to be, uh, an engineer and a producer, uh, while managing two small businesses just got to the point where it's like, it was just too much. I was just Mm -hmm. overwhelmed by it all. And, you know, luckily we found a buyer for the studio. And when that happened, it was like, Hey, here's my opportunity to get out of the, the bourgeois pig too. So, uh, uh luckily my partners were awesome about that so i got out of that and then uh in 2014 just really only did uh you know a handful of mixing projects out of my house and uh kind of took some time for myself and then started at the library in 2015
0: and I'm that's still cool. it's, it's interesting i was talking to mark trumbino last week and he you know similarly was disenchanted with some music stuff and got interested in donuts, made a donut shop. I don't yeah. know if you heard that or not, but he has a donut oh. shop in LA. So yeah. it's kind of parallel, doing less recording. Somebody mm-hmm. who's from the same time period, done some really similar bands and uh got into the food industry as a proprietor there, just like you did. I think yeah. that's interesting uh parallel. There's something about that. There must be some connection obviously there that people would draw that of m- music to food, which is yeah
2: well, and also for me, I mean, at that time, it was, you know, a chance to diversify a little bit, you know, to get mm-hmm. um, some of my money out of, you know, recording stuff and into something that was completely different than that. So, Well, they're
0: both incredibly difficult competitive industries, but it's very hard to eke out profit, too, which is, is bizarre. True statement. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, last thing I want to ask you is you're a full-sale graduate, and uh, that is... Full sale and a bunch of the other music recording programs around the country is, I don't know if people understand it or not, and I don't know if you have a recommendation or not, but it's unbelievable how many people that have come out of that school and other schools that are incredibly good and how small percentage that can be. I've seen a million bums and interns and everything that have these crazy educations, and I typically tell people, just look, you can probably figure this stuff out. You, you know, I typically say, I'm not so sure about schools like that. I think you can learn anything you want on your own. However, I know several people that have come out of that school specifically that are just awesome. So I want to know if you think it was chicken or egg there.
2: Well, no, for me, uh, uh, now I got to preface this with I went to Full Sail back in 1988, which was a really mm-hmm. long time ago. It was a completely different school back then. But, you know, uh, at that point, it was, it, you know, we call it a school, but it was a business and the, mm-hmm. it wasn't the, the primary uh, focus of, of, full sale was not making sure that little Ed Rose from Salina, Kansas, you know, was a happy engineer. It was like, did his fucking check clear. And, um, so, I mean, at that point, it, you know, they were in there to make sure that, you know, my dad's checks got cashed and that was pretty much it. Mm-hmm. Um, the you know there were some instructors that were good. There were some that were terrible. Um, uh, the placement department totally laid an egg uh, when I graduated. Um, and you know the good thing is I ended up at a facility in Los Angeles where um, you know I got to learn everything I know. I mean, you know if I look at what did I learn at Full Sail versus what did I learn uh, as an intern and mm-hmm. assistant at studio 55, you know, I learned nothing at full sale and learned everything at studio 55. And I was really lucky to have that opportunity.
0: How did you get it?
2: Um, well, when, uh, I told the placement department that I was going to Los Angeles to, uh, find an internship. And this mm-hmm. is probably two weeks before I, I went out there. They're like, okay, yeah, we'll line some stuff up for you. And they, uh, uh, I call him like the, the week before I'm leaving. It's like, what do you got set up for me? Well, we're still working on stuff, check back in a couple of days. So then that kept going until I got to Los Angeles when it's like, Hey man, I'm here. I've got, you know, Whoa. five days and, um, I'm broke. So we've got to, you know, we've got to get something happening. And they were like, okay, well, uh, we'll check back tomorrow. We'll have something for you. And so that happened every day until the last day I was there. And I was like, look, man, this is my last you know day in Los Angeles. Uh, I haven't been able to line up anything on my own. You guys haven't even gotten me an interview with any place. And, uh, the, the lady at the placement department, uh, was like, well, there is one full sale alum, uh, out there that, you know, may be able to direct you to a studio that we're just not thinking about. And so she set me up with David Dubow at, uh, studio 55. And I went there and he was super nice and he was like, well, here's the deal. You know, we, we don't have anything open. Um, You know, you can, you can try dropping off resumes at these other places, but you know, you're, they're going to tell you the same story. You know, you, your school in particular has, you know, whatever it was, 50 kids jumping out of there every month and they're all coming to the same places. You know, there's just not, there's just not room for it. And so, you know, we ended up, he takes me around the the studio, we hang out and, um, you know, at the end of it, he was like, here's the deal. You know, if, if this is what's standing between you and getting your certificate of completion, uh, you know, you can come here, you can burn your 240 hours here, and I'll sign off on your stuff. And I was like, you know, at this point, you know, I'm gonna have to take that because, you know, I don't have anything else to do. And there really wasn't a position there for me at all. But luckily, uh, um, a week after I got there, uh, one of the guys above me left. So then that, you know, translated into um, actually a full time uh, runner position. So um, just through the sheer luck of timing, Uh, I ended up, you know, getting lucky there.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, the thing that I find about it is, and, and, you know, I have, I'm glad to hear you say that in a way, not because I'm anti any particular school or whatever, but I feel like it's the same thing in all kinds of school. And this is a really good uh, thing about that is, I feel like there's something about school and most of the people that I've observed that have recording certificates or programs or come in and do internships is, they have almost developed this whole sense of, well, the placement department's supposed to do this. The engineer should get me to do this. The producer should tell me what to do. Um, you know, I'm here to to be directed, and right. that's just not the way the world is. I think I think middle school and high school are that way. I think mm-hmm. college is that way. So even more so, these recording programs, stuff like that. There's the myth of, well, you do all the stuff right, and then the things happen to you. It's just not even true. And that, you know, I've seen a million interns just sit still. And then you're like, "Hey, could you help me?" And they're like, "Oh, what? You want me? To, oh, okay." As mm-hmm. opposed to trying to anticipate, figure out, make their own luck, figure. You know, they just—it's just a whole different thing. I think the school, the schooling, almost encourages that mindset. No, I would agree up, with you. Happens to you in, instead of from you.
2: Well, yeah, and that's the other thing too. Is especially in in uh, recording, you've got to be a, a hustler to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. You've got to be able to go out there and you know
0: create create opportunities for yourself because you know.
2: Ain't no one going to do that for you.
0: Right. Well, Ed, I appreciate your time today very much. And sorry if I ran over a little bit. That's okay. It was great talking uh, to you. You know what? I'm not sorry, Ed. I'm not scared of you anymore. (laughs) Sophie. (laughs) Well, I thank you for being a a, uh, pivotal and informative, uh, you know, a. Somebody that I've learned a ton from. I really do mean that sincerely. There's tons of lessons that I use it, both in music and not music I learned from you in, the, in, in nine days. So thank you for, for that.
2: <laughs> Absolutely, Matt. My
0: pleasure. All right. Talk to you soon. All right. We'll see you. Yeah. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com.
3: through the exploration of texts and deep dives into various moral topics. You can find Practical Stoicism where you're already listening to podcasts by searching for Practical Stoicism or by going to StoicismPod.com. I invite you to give it a listen today. You just
1: might like it. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest,